0: Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region.
1: Hello from Jerusalem and welcome to Watchman Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli practitioners and experts on national security on its various parameters. And our guest today is Dr. Uzi Arad formerly a senior Mossad official, the National Security Staff Director, and an expert on strategy, decision-making, energy, and various uh, other subjects. A veteran uh, intelligence and security official. Dr. Arad, welcome. Thank you, thank you, it's good to be here. Let's start from the end or from the present, and then work our way back uh, to the past. Uh, Much like air forces now count more and more on unmanned aerial vehicles, are we going to have espionage without spies? Electronics, cyber, SIGINT, that is signal intelligence. And the question is addressed to you because you were on the human side. Of intelligence.
0: Well, you know, this is a philosophical question because uh, we are now in the midst of an era in which the question "men and machines, and when will machines take over" is often debated. And the inclination of some is to say one that if things go very wrong, we humans might be bringing the end on ourselves and in fact bring about the extinction of the human race through our machines, uh, which is a very, very sad possibility, and the end may be nearer than we think. On the other hand, it's fashionable to say that uh, the human spirit or human creativity or human ingenuity will always prevail, while at the same time we do delegate to machines some of the functions that humans can do, as well as capitalize on the possibility of machines to do things that far exceed what the human brain can do, uh, computationally otherwise, but then always preserve a certain degree of human control, because we wouldn't be willing to entrust to machines everything. So uh, a kind of a, a modicum of human control uh, would remain. So- now. We can expect, of course, as we are seeing, that the tradecraft of intelligence is completely changing under the revolution, under the digital revolution or the artificial intelligence revolution. And we see, as you said, things are happening with uh, the Air Force and so forth. But what, what this would probably do is that, yes, machines would be doing more intelligence collection and analysis functions beyond what the human brain was capable of, but then that would leave us to try to either invent those machines or to retain some control over them so as to be around. So I don't think that the human element would disappear, but we would completely change
1: its character. For uh, some 20 years, um, you uh, came up uh, through the ranks in Mossad from entry level, not the lowest rung on the ladder, but uh, from the entry level up to division chief, which is um, in the Israeli establishment, the equivalent of a major general. And um, your specialties were foreign liaison and intelligence research and assessment. Again, two human endeavors. Um, which required the human brain and uh, some uh, manners, cordiality, knowing uh, how to woo people uh, who belong to um, different cultures. So the question is, uh, what brought you to Mossad in the first place? And if one is not mistaken, your first um, subject matter was energy in the early 70s, right after the energy crisis in the United States and your experience in a United States research um, facility think tank? Well, I mean, see, my, my personal history is, is completely
0: anecdotal. doesn't mean much. Uh, I always wanted to enter government, uh, and I pursued the education that could lead to that, and that is why I studied at schools for public policy here in Israel. Then I went to the Wood Wilson School at Princeton University. Then I went to work for a think tank. Uh, and at that time, I was searching for a subject on which to write my dissertation. But initially, I wanted to train myself for the defense community. So my first proposal was not energy. It was to study the applications of systems analysis, cost benefit analysis, and PBBS, by the State Department and the Defense Department in America. PPBS, planning, planning, programming, budgeting. Budgeting. All these management and decision-making tools that were experimented with in America succeeded well in the Pentagon, failed at the State Department, although they were brought there by Tom Schelling, a future recipient of the Nobel Prize. And I wanted to write about these and in so doing acquire the facility with those tools. My mentor at Princeton vetoed that idea. He said, there's nothing that you can innovate about those things. And suddenly I was left empty-handed. So I started to search for something which had any relevance because I wanted to be relevant, not theoretical. I looked around, sniffed around, the year was 72, and I felt like an oil crisis was about to come. So this is what I wrote my dissertation on, which was called The World Interdependence on Energy and the Security of Supply. It fitted exactly what happened in '73. It was very expedient at the time, and I was fortunate to be there, uh, well-connected with all the big, big, big league of the oil companies and the like. But that ended it, because the Mossad spotted me in America and approached me on Park Avenue and told me that they want me to join their ranks. To which I said, let me just finish my obligations here and I'll, show, and I'll come, which I did. And when I joined the Mossad in 75, it turned out that energy was not their priority. So I then became completely immersed in what has been two areas in which uh, I spent most of my man hours. One is the Arab-Israeli conflict, its ups and downs. And the other one was strategy and nuclear weapons and proliferation. But you were right. I moved from two divisions, one to another. And I I will benefit at this occasion to tell you about another Israeli exceptionalism. Whereas in other services, uh, the operational division, the typical operational division, does both liaison and allied relationships and human collections and unilateral operations. In Israel, it's separate. You have uh, the strictly espionage division, which does running and recruiting agents, almost all of them Arab or Iranian. And then you have a separate division, completely autonomous, which does with intelligence cooperation, primarily with allies and involves uh, that kind of thing. A sort of clandestine foreign service. Yes, but on matters of intelligence now there are rules to that and in some ways you could equate you say that it also involves humans But whereas uh, the typical case officer who handles uh, an agent has to Cultivate that agent and bring him to do what he wants him to do the liaison officer is working vis-a-vis an agency it wants to influence and help the agency through many human beings and professionals who operate there. That is often more difficult.
1: So the case officer or spy runner uh, in popular culture is a retail officer, while you, as the liaison to the CIA, MI6, and the others, works. you work uh, in wholesale. You, If you have... What we did is everything that was done in cooperation with others. If it was
0: a human source, but which was ran jointly by three or four countries, it was done by that division and cooperation. If it was, as we say, white and blue, then it was run by that. So the liaison was involved in all types of operations, SIGINT, UMINT, whatever, political. But the characteristic was that it was done in cooperation with allies. And here, I think that the Israeli exceptionalism in this field proved its value because you have to learn how to work with allies. We did learn to do with partners and allies. There are rules how you do it. And just as military alliances exist, so do intelligence alliances. But how do you do it productively, fruitfully, professionally, collegially? That's another matter. Take note of the fact That in the Mossad, I think uh, Nahum came from those ranks. Nahum
1: Admoni, a former Mossad chief. Yes, and Efraim Alevi
0: came from there. Also, the famous David Kimchi was from that. So, you, you have at least three or four Mossad chiefs who came from that liaison division, whereas from the spy running division, I think only Yossi. And I I can't think of anyone Uh, else.
1: He's the first one. Yes. Yossi and the current, outgoing... Which will show
0: you... I don't know what it tells you, but it does tell something.
1: Now, you mentioned uh, Israeli exceptionalism. But some Israelis um, have been blamed for wearing this exceptionalism on their sleeves, Uh, being arrogant, um, not always uh, giving the colleagues... Um, the most comfortable time by uh, trying to tell them that Mossad knows best. In your experience, and you met with the British, the French, and and others, and you were were stationed in Brussels, in Paris, in in Washington, many places. Um, Is there a cultural wall between us Israelis and Europeans or North Americans or Anglo-Saxons well you know you can generalize about
0: Israelis at large but as you know many Israelis are different from one another and we have different styles it is true that some of us particularly the Israeli born sabras often do believe that we you know they we believe sometimes in our slogans as being you know startup nation or that kind of thing which is sometimes an inflated self-view. Not only startup, light onto nations. Yes. Well, I think the older generation, the wiser generation, and uh, knew, was more precise in knowing what our forte is or was, as well as were our shortcomings, and we do have some shortcomings. Um, I think that it befits an intelligence man to have a very honest image of himself or herself and in in the process of being an allied at the same time look at our allies the same way that is to say to recognize areas in which they are better than us and there are always areas in which people are better than us through a variety of reasons and sometimes and and the idea was all often to be compl- complementary complementary uh, We should not have this sometimes arrogant... It it is unwise to be arrogant. It is always more valuable to demonstrate your respect for the other guys, particularly when it is well-deserved respect. All our allies had fabulous colleagues. And most of my memories were from the first rate intelligence men and women I knew who were French, British... German, yes, I repeat, German, Americans, Canadians, there are always good people and there are always people who are better than us.
1: Is there a different way to liaise with or to approach the British or the Russians or the Middle Easterners? Uh, well, in the Western
0: world, we usually have recent, I mean, similar, process. so to say, norms about. What decency, uh, honesty is. In the Middle East, you have a more, a different, slightly different view. I remember, for example, when my prime minister uh, made a big show of showing the archives that were removed from Tehran, and his conclusion was to say they lie about the Iranians. I mean, what do you mean? Really? If you were to tell an Iranian, a mature, seasoned Iranian, that he does not lie, he would feel insulted. So uh, what is that? In certain cultures, uh, certain liberties are taken, but they are the first one to admit it. And one, at the same time, must have respect and try to be on the same wavelength with allies if you want to cooperate with them, with Middle Easterners, You should, by the way, I always, always was uh, uh, deferred to Arab intelligence people I got to know through either liaison or otherwise because it takes an Arab to understand the Arab. Sometimes they have the agility of mind that we square types
1: uh, are unable to understand. We sometimes take words literally where they don't really mean it. They have what I used to call the arabesques.
0: Very, very complicated. And I just listened and learned. And, you know, and they spoke more and more
1: because they had an admiring listener. Now, um, some of your um, fellow sister services were frenemies. Sometimes they uh, spy on you at the same time uh, when they cooperate with you. How can you juggle um, uh, these two tasks? Not on you personally, they spy, but Israel is a target for many intelligence services, even though they also cooperate with you. Look,
0: the Americans tried to recruit me twice when I was a student. And, you know, I used to, years later, when I worked with the CIA, I used to ask how good old so-and-so is doing uh, because he approached me as a foreign student as an interesting target. Uh, so, yeah, they do things they weigh the way that it is true that there are sometimes norms, the permissible and not permissible, and then it is not always symmetrical what a superpower can allow himself to do uh, a client. I don't, you know, It's perhaps an overstretched word, but still, one should understand that there is no symmetry here. Uh, but then there are things that you can expect from an ally, and if they do something which violates certain agreements, the question is, uh, do you think that this is, uh, was uncalled for, or can you accept that as a fact of life? Um, yeah, the Americans are looking at us, and they've been looking at us, and I, I do not envy them, because they have a very difficult try to understand what the hell we're doing. We are very difficult to understand, not to penetrate. Uh, We do not uh, uh, cross uh, the red lines when it comes to collecting in America, because it is not in our interest. And when another agency did that, uh, it backfired.
1: And that's why we observe different rules. We meaning Mossad, because the polar affair, which you were referring to, was an aberration And it was handled by a defense ministry unit. Yes,
0: which did it unprofessionally. Uh, But this is not to say that every once in a while we are disappointed, not necessarily by the fact that we are being spied on, but sometimes because we are deceived too, and one should not deceive one another. I, I, I think that there is a very high degree of value in being trustworthy in being credible and it's good to invest in credibility to give you just one example there was uh, a certain high-level visitor uh, from the cia who came to visit israel with a delegation and and professional discussions were conducted with him uh, at a place called the guest house Uh, around 5 p.m at at mossad headquarters uh, 5 p.m the conference ended and the delegation left the office. And when we entered the room, we noticed that the head of that delegation left behind him his entire
1: dossier. So what are we to do? Don't ask a journalist about that, because journalistic ethics would have been different from Mossad ethics. The journalist would have riffed through the dossier. What we did, what I did, was I
0: called the driver. I said, now you are about to drive to the American embassy, violate all the traffic laws, so that when the van in which that man arrives, he would find his dossier there. It was so much more valuable than, you know, the credibility earned was so much more valuable than had we sifted in the air to find one
1: thing or another, there is much value in that, and it served us well. Ariel Sharon once said, "Restraint is power." So the fact that you did not indulge in this bargain, uh, which presented itself is to that you, only power. Uh, Restraint, sometimes and and respect
0: and decency, sometimes even chivalry, and there have been instances like that, are worthwhile.
1: Uh, Dr. Ruzi Arad, former senior uh, Mossad official, this is uh, the first of two conversations uh, we are having. And um, because we're uh, focusing now on intelligence, uh, the next uh, topic is when you arrived in the mid-70s uh, to Mossad, it was right after the Yom Kippur War in which a commission of inquiry uh, recommended that the assessment task which was up to then uh, handled um, almost single-handedly by military intelligence called Amman in Israel, also be given to the foreign ministry and to Mossad. And you were part of uh, what I was sta- a beneficiary of that. But looking back now, um, 45 uh, years later, has it really made a difference Uh, that there are three or four competing assessments.
0: Yes, by all means, although it developed in different ways. Uh, Today, you have sometimes, uh, it it seems to be, a little division of labor uh, in which certain agencies uh, have the upper hand in areas in which they specialize. For example, the security service, the domestic Shabak. Shabak, because of its involvement with Palestinians, has acquired, in his research section, a greater understanding and command of Palestinian issues. So that's why its voice on such matters is heard, perhaps more than Mossad's or Amman, the military intelligence. Mossad, on the other hand, because its heavy involvement in counter-Iranian and counter-proliferation areas and its history in Iran has gradually evolved into the agency that when assessment of Iranian matters, its voice is heard sometimes no less than that of the military intelligence. And naturally, when it comes to strictly military matters, military intelligence still prevails. So over time you had specializations taking place. Now, the very multiplicity or pluralism, as it says, also here and there, but not too often, brought about differences in views. And differences in views sometimes is helpful so as to avoid falling into the trap of monolithic thinking.
1: But you're kicking up the um, burden of decision to the decision maker. Now he has two or three options to choose from, but eventually... He must choose one. It, it was not as if he was earlier blind to all the possibilities. Perhaps it was uh, more convenient for him or her, Golda in 1973, to uh, rely on one. But eventually, it only brings it to a higher level.
0: Yes, and that's very bad. And you're putting your finger now on a very serious deficiency. We do not have what was recommended in the 70s that next in proximity to the Prime Minister and the cabinet there would be a national intelligence advisor who would do the task of bringing together integrating or confronting views so that it is not the Prime Minister as you said who has in his very limited time to make a decision as to whose view he accepts and sometimes is not competent to that. He may choose the one who has the deeper voice or the louder voice or the one who sent his paper first. You know, we were racing to send papers first because that would be the first that he would read. That's unhealthy. Publish or perish, like academia. So, so, So that's unhealthy. And that omission, that lacuna still exists. So we, you know, our exceptionalism is
1: sometimes for the worse. So this was uh, one sort of um, a collegial relationship with your Shabak and Amman and foreign ministry colleagues. But also within Mossad, this is one division which has to compete um, for uh, time and attention with the other more operational divisions. How did that um, go about Well, in my time,
0: the analytical branch was staffed by people who were analytically bent, usually more educated and sometimes more naive when it comes to operation. They did not have the adventurous qualities of the... uh, But, and there was a certain separation between analysis and operation. However, with time, you had a movement back and forth. You had some people from the operational background who sometimes headed the analytical section, like Ilan Mizrahi, for example, who did a good job. And you had many who moved from the analytical either to the liaison, because the liaison requires some international exposure, or even into operation. And by now, I think
1: that the walls have been blurred a little bit. But uh, the most secret um, and uh, executive action-oriented, as the Americans uh, call it, uh, unit uh, usually uh, known as Caesarea, Caesarea, um, taking part in in heat uh, operations or other sorts uh, of very secret uh, activities. This is still uh, within a very very inner sanctum, a compartment not even known to the analysts? Most often this is
0: true. Often, however, uh, when needed, uh, the head of the analytical department is brought into the issue so that if there is need for that kind of input it was it is obtained at the highest level while the operation itself is fully compartmented um, but here and there as I said uh, uh, sometimes there are consultations and and secrecy and compartmentation is arrived at by having a very limited circle of People have access to this information. I feel like a man who has seen a revolution. The world of intelligence today, just like the world of decision-making, has been completely transformed. I couldn't find my way in today's world. I sometimes have pity for those who have to do the same job under the current circumstances because there, it's very difficult to keep things secret now.
1: Uzi Arad, thank you very much, and we will talk again very soon.
0: Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.